This is Mary Beth Hunter with the fourth episode of the Better Conflict Bulletin's podcast, The Transformers, where we speak with people who are working on making the American conflict better. We'll include peace builders who are mediating difficult conversations between red and blue, teachers training their students in conflict skills, journalists who are committed to being trusted by all sides, and technologists asking what platforms can do to help. Today, we're speaking with conflict transformation specialist and trainer, Lorraine Seagull. Lorraine wasn't enjoying her career as a tenured professor in what she says was a toxic workplace. She took the leap of leaving full-time academia to learn about and practice conflict transformation. On today's program, she shares her experiences and thoughts about the importance of asking questions and how to separate the person from the problem. Today, we're speaking with Lorraine Siegel of Conflict Remedy. Welcome, and please tell us a little bit about your background. Oh, well, thank you so much, Mary Beth. I'm really glad to be here with you and your listeners. I was a tenured professor at a community college for many years, and it was a wonderful experience in many ways, and I was in a very toxic environment where I was bullied and mobbed. And afterwards, I thought, this can't be what a mediation is. (laughs) And I was actively looking for a different career anyway. I really wanted to escape from this toxic academia. And so I started exploring and found a program in conflict management, as it was called then, and took one class and fell in love with the field and pretty much transformed myself. This event sounds like it had a huge effect on you, not just directing the way of your career, but it also sounds like it impacted you a lot emotionally. Would you mind telling us a little bit about that? I can't even regret that because I love the field of conflict transformation so much, and I don't think I would have explored it if I hadn't been had such high motivation to make a change. I was so naive when I got the full-time job. I had been a freeway flyer piecing a schedule together from all these different colleges in the San Francisco Bay Area where I was living. And then I got this full-time tenure job, and I was ecstatic. And I expected a group of like-minded, open-minded individuals searching for intellectual truth and to serve our students. And instead, checked every single box for why people get mobbed. I was different. I was a Jewish lesbian. My students were lovely, but it was an extremely toxic, close-minded environment. I think I was the only one there. I believe that the college should live up to their principles and their mission statement and their vision and really serve the English as a second language students and be a model of egalitarianism and diversity, equity, and inclusion. And none of that was true. And I also, part of the reason I was such a target was that I was extremely competent and good what I did, good at what I did. And that made me a threat to people who wanted to stay in their little mediocre place. And it was quite a large group of people, administrators and faculty, who were trying to destroy me basically, personally and professionally. It was very hard to walk away from tenure. Many people who were different, who were people of color, 
had similar experiences there, toxic racism, sexism, homophobia, anti-Semitism, you name it. Do you find these DEI issues tend to be a flashpoint? Do you think some people find them divisive rather than something that is bringing people together? Oh, absolutely. This college in particular paid lip service to those principles because they were supposed to, but they did not want anything to change. And the group of older white men I call the dinosaurs, on some level knew they had unearned privilege and they did not want to lose it. And anyone who was in the wrong package and extremely competent or innovative or creative was a threat. There are some people who are never going to change. And that's just a fact. That college was so persistently toxic. I'm not sure if anything we could have done would have actually made it shift. A lot of colleges are like this, but it was unusually bad. I've taught at universities and gone into workplaces, and I teach conflict transformation skills and different topics. And I always include intercultural communication and DEI. I'm actually teaching it at the Sonoma State, the HR certificate program, being a guest lecturer next week. And the way I do it that I think is helpful, it's not the whole answer, is I'm very gentle about it. People get are scared. They're scared of losing privilege. They're scared of being called racist. They're scared of being labeled bad. And they're afraid that something terrible is going to happen. And I'm talking about white people, people of color. No, they're looking for a better change in equal opportunities and respect. And um, approaching it that way seems to create more openness for people to be able to listen and understand. And for example, one of the things I did when I taught a 12-week class and had a whole evening just on implicit bias and racism, I brought a panel of Black women and had them talk about their experiences in the workplace with racism, with discrimination. And it blew my students' minds because it wasn't real to them. They didn't understand before that. So I think making those kinds of experiences human and real helps a lot. And there was this powerful exercise that I've used with classes I've taught as well, where all the white women sat in a circle, it's called a fishbowl, and women of color who were were courageous sat in the middle and talked about their daily lives and their experiences. And it was so powerful. So this woman who read my memoir, who is white, said, I have a bone to pick with you about this. Women, white women are oppressed and they shouldn't have to stay silent outside. And I thought, whoa, it's pairing discriminations, which is not what you want to do. I have a lot of privilege as a middle-class white woman. And I've also experienced a lot of discrimination as a Jewish lesbian and a woman where only men were supposed to be leaders. And both things are true. It sounds like You feel that a lot of the divisive environments that spring up, especially in the workplaces that are toxic, a lot of this comes from fear. How do you think fear feeds into a divisive environment? I think it's the root of it. Fear and hatred of what's different, a fear that you might have to change, a determination to have things stay the way they are 
and deny that there's institutionalized racism and sexism and homophobia. I did a lot of forgiveness work with these people because I did not want to have a bitter heart and be consumed with hatred. And I prayed for them every day for their transformation, for their well-being. And that was for me to have a peaceful heart. But a side effect of it was that I did find some compassion and realized that for them, change felt like annihilation. And so they felt justified in lying and being hateful and cruel because they felt like their total destruction was the alternative, which of course isn't true, but that's how they felt. Let's pivot and speak about how to conduct a disagreement. How can people disagree more constructively? Well, that's a great question, and it's one of the foundation ones, Mary Beth. There's several components. One is that conflict is directly related to misunderstanding each other and making assumptions about each other, which is directly related to the story we are telling about ourselves, about the other people, and about the situation. And another element of it is how we see mistakes, our mistakes, other people's mistakes. I was originally trained as a mediator, and I actually don't do a lot of formal mediation anymore, because when I discovered conflict coaching, I realized that I I didn't like the aspect of mediation, that I was using all my skills to simply keep people from flying out of their chairs and choking each other. And what I discovered is if I could talk to them separately, I could listen to their stories, validate what was difficult and hard and hurtful and angering about that, and then ever so gently start redirecting them to, okay, that makes sense, but how do you think the other person might be seeing it? What's their story? What's their perception? And so many times, People are simply missing each other. There are malicious people. I would never say there aren't. But a lot of times people really have a story about the other person's motivations. They don't realize that the other person has a completely different set of stories and issues. And when I can bring them together, which I've actually been very successful at doing, sometimes they don't even need me to talk to each other because they've opened up their stories and their thinking. Um, And other times with me, they're able to resolve things that felt absolutely unresolvable, where they saw the other person as the enemy. How does your work as a mediator reflect what's going on in the country? If, for example, you're working with someone who says, you know what, I don't believe in privilege, I don't believe in systemic racism or sexism, and I think this is just an agenda you obviously personally believe differently. So how do you work with that in a calm way? How do you not make this a gang up then on the person who you might disagree with? Well, I, as you've already seen my bias towards working with people one-on-one first. And because I studied at the Intercultural Communication Institute in Portland, which is all about communicating across cultural differences and communicating across bias, et cetera. And I've definitely had some experiences where people were in that place. And my my very first thought might have been, what? (laughs) But what I do is I remind myself that they're a human being, that they have different information from me. There's reasons for what they believe. 
and um, they might be open to shifting or they might not. Let me give you a couple examples. One of my students missed the, this was the 12-week program, missed the week I did on implicit bias, racism, intercultural communication. So we had a phone call and I kind of caught her up on what she needed to watch and what she needed to read. And she said, I don't believe it makes any difference if you're black or white. And my first thought was, as I said, what? <laughs> I didn't say that. And I thought about for a minute about what I knew about her. She was from a working class background. It had been a big deal for her to go to college. She did not have much money. She was working full time. She'd lost her job and was looking for a new one. She had all these issues going on that made her feel like she wasn't privileged. And it's true. She was not. But what I said to her is, well, think about two women, a black woman and a white woman, one who's black, who's just like you. Think of two other women who were professors, one who's white and one's black. Do you think their experiences would be exactly the same? And she'd never thought about it before. And she got it. She's, she said, wow, I, I guess that's a little bit different. And she said, but I've never seen it. And I said, well, if you pay attention, you're going to see a thousand examples on TV and in your life. And she said, well, I better pay attention. I didn't accuse her of anything. It was very gentle. I had another experience where I was in a business networking group and someone stood up and introduced himself. He was in construction and he used an a horrible anti-Semitic expression in introducing himself. And I felt like I had been stabbed through the heart. I'd never heard anyone actually say this before. And I knew I had to talk to him after the meeting and it was very uncomfortable. But what I did was I did not make him the enemy. I went up to him afterwards and I said, that felt really awful when you said that. And he said, I know, I'm so sorry. I said, you probably hear that a lot. He said, yes, I'm around people on construction sites and they say things like that. And uh, it just came out and I don't know what to do about it. And I said, I understand that. And I know what you can do. The next time you hear someone say that, you can speak up and tell them it's not okay. He said, oh, and I could tell them what happened to me in this meeting. I said, right. And so we had a conversation about it because I didn't demonize him. I didn't like what he did, but I really did what we talk about all the time in mediation of separating the person from the problem. That goes into what you discussed on your website about creating a safe environment for people using your services. How exactly is that done when you've got two people on either side of an issue? I create the safety first individually with them. So they feel like I'm on their side because I'm on both their sides. I want to help them understand and communicate together. So when I build that rapport and empathy with each person, they both feel like they have an ally in the room because I am. And a lot of times they find out they're not on the opposite side of an issue. Now, of course, I don't do political mediations. These are, these are workplace, but I'll give you an example. A credit union hired me to deal with a big conflict between one of the vice presidents and a manager. The manager was black. The vice president was white. 
I worked with them separately and we talked about what she was thinking and why things had happened from her perspective. I talked to the African-American woman about what was happening from her perspective and did she think there was racism in it? I was very open of asking her if she thought that and she wasn't sure. And it turned out that they each had really big misunderstandings about the other person. The VP thought she was protecting and being kind to the manager by trying not to give her too much work. The manager felt disrespected because of that, but also the manager had these judgments that the VP would be exactly the same kind of manager that she was. And so when we talked about those kinds of things, and like with the VP, I said, well, did you ask her if she wants to do that? Did you ask her if it's too much? And with the African-American, the Black woman, there's more than one good way to be a manager. You, You can't expect her to read your mind. Can you ask for what you need and want from her? And they never even needed me to talk to them together because it opened up their thinking that they were missing each other, not that they were enemies. And so they started out really feeling like enemies, but they weren't. Then they resolved it and had a good working relationship. How interesting that you phrased it as, do you think there's racism involved? What's going on here? I think if this situation were explained on Twitter, this would be an instant firestorm. The manager who was Black trusting me that I was willing to look at that and support her around it if it was a witch. I was fully prepared to do that, to do consciousness raising with a white woman if I needed to about that issue. It just turned out that it wasn't a big deal. And it sounds most importantly, these women were willing to let go of those grudges and resentments and move forward together. And it sounds like you've dealt with this a lot in your life. You mentioned that you prayed a lot for the people that were involved in your situation. If someone is perhaps an atheist or agnostic, what do you think is the best way to let go of grudges and resentments for them? My only criteria really for clients is that they're willing to look at their part and willing just even a tiny bit to change. And if they can do that, if they're willing to go there with me, then I can generally help them. If they're not, if they're stuck in their little space, there's not much I can do. And I work with lots of people who are atheists or agnostics. It's funny because it's one of the questions I ask if I'm, if they're holding a grudge or a resentment, I call them prayers or affirmations that I give them and tell them to do every day. And it doesn't matter to me at all if they're atheists or they're Buddhist or Christian or whatever. It makes no difference. The idea is that they're willing to send good thoughts or blessings to that person, that they're willing to acknowledge their own part. And it works just as well. One of my prayers starts out, and when I give it to people, I I will fill in the blank for them, but it's God is universe, light, or nothing. Please grant me, and you don't even have to know who you're doing it with, and it works. It sounds like that's a good weapon, for lack of a better word, to use with adults bullying other adults. If you find you're an adult in the workplace, or if you're, for example, in a teacher-parent relationship, what kind of advice do you have for them to deal with bullying? 
Well, I also teach some about bullying. And primarily, the first thing I say about it is, it isn't the same as conflict. And people get confused about that. Interpersonal conflict tends to be equal opportunity. If it's all one way, if it's an assault, an attack by one person on another, it's bullying and it requires different strategies. And I think the only one that overlaps is the affirmation one, because affirmations are helpful for us to know that we're okay, even if people outside are not telling us that. I've worked with people who are doing the bullying behaviors and people who are being bullied both. And sometimes the same person can be both in slightly different settings. Some of it is setting boundaries, getting support, In horrifically bullying situations, the best thing is to, in my personal opinion, is to get out because it's so destructive. And I've worked with a couple people like this who were so deeply wounded that they never worked again, as far as I know. Sounds like it's more traumatic than a lot of people realize. Yes. And especially from my observation, if people have unresolved trauma from their childhood or earlier in life if they were somehow abused or traumatized and it wasn't healed, they're at greater risk of bullying and it could have a much more traumatic effect. It sounds like it's something that they bring forward no matter how old they are. And that affects how they deal with other human beings on a interpersonal level. For example, that guy over there who is either red or blue and I'm red or blue, I don't trust him. Something that can multiply and be applied to people who are in an out group very easily. Yeah, people want like to have in-groups and out-groups. And I think a lot of my work is that we're all humans on the planet together. Is it getting better or worse or just different? I don't know if I can characterize it so simply. Because there have been some leaders recently in the U.S. who model hate, bullying, rejection of difference, that it has emboldened and encouraged that in many people, which I find so sad and wrong. I also think that simultaneously that more people from different groups are speaking up about their experiences, that in HR, for example, there's more about understanding that a robust, creative, productive workplace has differences You end up with better products, better environment, better everything if you manage that skillfully. I think both things are happening simultaneously. The goal is not to avoid conflict. Conflict is good. It's just how you manage it. There's quite a bit of writing about good conflict, bad conflict. The worst conflict is the pointing finger. You're impossible. You're the enemy. You're different. I can't talk to you. I hate you. That kind of conflict is dangerous and can definitely get out of hand and lessen the humanity of the people who are doing the hating, in my opinion. There's a quote I love, if everybody's thinking exactly the same, nobody's thinking very much. (laughs) So when you think of the whole idea of creative problem solving, how can we make this better? How can we do things differently that invites more people that solves the problem that creates more wealth. When people have very different perspectives, they bring a richness to any discussion of 
outcomes or solutions. That is simply not possible if everybody's thinking the same way. I have this wheel that I use. It's called the wheel of power, I think. And it's got about 25 little wedges for the circle and three circles within that are all about what's your privilege? What's your power? So, for example, I've, uh, a black middle-class college-educated woman has some privilege, but she also has discrimination. It, it can be about religion. Are you disabled or able-bodied? What's your educational background? What's your native language? There's a million different aspects of it that make up the whole of who each of us are and how we navigate through the world with what privilege and what challenges. Do you think it's more healthy for people to view themselves as more holistic people who are made up of all kinds of different parts rather than I am this race, I am this religion, I am this gender? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. How do you leverage that when there's a disagreement or you see a workplace becoming toxic? I meet people where they are and see them as whole people with challenges and mistakes, etc. And then I help them do that with each other. That's one reason I mentioned that I did a panel that was all Black women, and I certainly could have included Latinx people, I could have included men, but the reason I picked Black women was just because one of the things I wanted my students to see was here were these women who would be labeled Black women, and they were so diverse and so different from each other that this was another level of people not being able to dismiss someone as just one thing. If you could give people advice about changing one way about how they argue or how they approach conflict, what would you tell them? This is a complicated subject. It depends which expert you talk to, but there's quite a bit of writing. Between 60 and 90% of conflict is internal. It's all about how you feel about yourself and other people, the sum total of your experience the story you're telling yourself about that situation and that person and yourself, how much you see yourself as a victim or an actor, all those kinds of things. So the first thing that I want people to do in a conflict is take a deep breath and start asking themselves questions. (laughs) And I have different lists of questions. What other stories are possible? What would happen if you didn't pick this story? And it's amazingly powerful. That's just one simple technique, but it's very powerful. Asking questions, bringing more into the narrative. Yes. Thank you so much for your time. We appreciate it. Is there anything you're working on now you'd like to tell us about and tell us where we can find you online? Oh, well, thank you for that, Mary Beth. I'm I'm always looking for more opportunities to coach people and to teach and train in organizations or universities. So I would welcome inquiries about that. I have such a good time, and so do my students, and I love doing that. And I write a blog, and you can sign up to receive my blog at my website, which is conflictremedy.com. I also give a free article about the high cost of conflict, so if they're trying to convince the 
C-suite people to hire conflict management and conflict transformation training. It's a good one to use. And I also wrote a memoir, Angels and Earthworms, An Unexpected Journey to Joy, Love, and Miracle, which is kind of a more lighthearted take on conflict and transformation. And you can find it on the same website, which is conflictremedy.com slash book. And those forgiveness prayers or affirmations I talked about, if you sign up for that newsletter, you get those as a little freebie. Lorraine, thanks so much for your time. We appreciate it. Oh, you're so welcome. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for joining us today, Lorraine. Come find the Better Conflict Bulletin at betterconflictbulletin.substack.com to subscribe to our free and weekly newsletter, including an edited transcript of today's conversation. If you have any feedback or suggestions for our work, find us on Twitter at better underscore conflict. We appreciate the moments you spent with us. See you next time. And remember that all people are whole people.